I'm very excited to share with you an approach to Sefer Shir Hashirim, Megillah Shir Hashirim, something that, uh, just to explain why I'm so excited to be doing Shir Hashirim, uh, perhaps we'll start with why it's very difficult for me to begin in the way that normally uh, one would begin a Shir like this. Uh, perhaps with a quick review for a minute or two of the basic storyline, just to make sure that we're all on the same page. Uh, when it comes to Shir Hashirim, that's virtually impossible because the basic storyline is so profoundly unclear um, that we're not even sure who the characters are, how many characters we have, how many different stories, what the sequence is. Uh, we were hit immediately by a mass of confusion and thoroughly different approaches from one extreme to the other. There's a collage of lots of different little stories. It's one long story. There are a couple of characters. There's a whole whole series of characters. Chronology, uh, all kinds of ideas about the chronology. And so I can't even begin by telling you what the basic story is, except for to tell you that it's a love story or love stories. And um, other than that, you have to read it yourselves, and I'm sure you have already, but in any case... uh, that's the situation. And that's why I'm so excited about it, because Shir Hashirim is one of the most enigmatic of all the Svarim of Tanakh. Uh, and I know for myself, uh, as I learned through Tanakh, Shir Hashirim was kind of that safer, or certainly on the very short list of Svarim, said, someday, someday I'll try to understand what's going on. But, uh, you know, and eventually you get older and older, and someday has to arrive. So at a certain point, I decide I'm going to sit down for, you know, X number of scores of hours and try and try and bang my head against it and try to uh, a- attain some kind of an understanding. So I'd like to share with you the fruits of that labor and uh, at least very briefly because uh, in the little bit of time that we have, a little over an hour, we can't really do everything. But what I would like to do is present approximately a half a dozen keys, in my opinion, um, a half a dozen keys, and particularly one of them, but a half a dozen keys to understanding Shir Hashir. Uh, on a certain level, the Shir would be a waste if after we finish, at some point, I know you have other Shirim to go to, not right away, but at some point, tonight, tomorrow, over Shabbos, two weeks from now, it would be a shame if you didn't sit down with Shir Hashirim, no matter how many times you've learned it before, and try to take these keys and then go through the Sefer very carefully. That's what I recommend. But in any case, I'd like to present to you a kind of map for approaching Shira Shirim. Okay, let's start with the easy one. The very beginning of Shira Shirim, the beginning of Shira Shirim, and let me just tell you where I'm going. Shira Shirim begins, Shira Shirim Asher Lishlomo. We're told right away, this is Shira Shirim of Shlomo HaMelech. And um, as we will see, it's not so simple to understand why of all people Shlomo Melch is the one who writes this. Um, in a certain sense, if you look at the basic message of Shir Hashirim, we would expect that it would be written by almost anyone except for Shlomo Melch. And I'm going to try to address that question by the time we get to the very end. Okay? Um, if you don't understand the question at this point, that's fine, because I need to go through a few other points before we get to the development of that question. But in any case, it's a very important question. Because Shira Shirim is not Nevoah, it's Ruach HaKodesh, and we're not talking about something that's dictated by God, word for word, and it's divine inspiration, and therefore the authorship is important. 
the person saying it is, is very important. It's not something that's coming straight from Hashem. It's being inspired by Hashem. And we have to understand where Shlomo Melch and his life fits into the, to the larger picture. And we'll see that very much does so. Okay, after that kind of heading, that uh, you know, title page of Pasuk Aleph, we come to the first three real psukim of the Sefer, Bet Gimel Dalit, which we have at the beginning of the source book. And I'd like to read those three psukim. Those three psukim form a kind of a unit. And the way that you can tell that it's a unit is the fact that if you look at the end of Pasuk Bet and the end of Pasuk Gimel, the parts that are underlined, Kitovim Dodech Miyayim and Alkain Alamot Ahivucha, and then you look at Pasuk Dalid, you'll see that Pasuk Dalid, the end of Pasuk Dalid, brings together the threads of those two. So we have the idea of the tovim dodecha miyayin, naskira dodecha miyayin, from Pasuk Bet. We have the alkein alamot ha'evucha, mesharim ha'evucha, in Pasuk Dalad from the end of Pasuk Gimel. We see that this is a small little unit that needs to be looked at on those terms. And if you look at that small unit, you see something very interesting, and this is point number one. The first thing which is obvious but important to say nonetheless about Shir Hashirim, and this is certainly not a Chiddush. Chazal harp on this quite a bit. But it's clear, I want to do everything from within the text of the Sefer. Yishakeni minishikot pihu. Yishakeni, the simple meaning is that from the word nishika, to kiss. Right? That's the clear meaning of yishakeni minishikot pihu. She asked to be kissed by the kisses of his mouth. You look, however, at the rest of the Pasuk, and I think it's clear that there's a play on words. And it's not only referring to the word nishika, but it alludes to, again, the etymology is certainly from the word nishika, but it also alludes to the idea of mashke, of a fluid or a liquid. And that's how the Pasuk continues. Kitovim dodecha miyayin. Right? That affection, that love, that passion, that kissing is compared to, indeed, one of the primary liquids, which is yayin wine. Okay? The same thing happens in the next pasuk. L'reach shemanecha tovim, shemen turak shemecha, alkein alamot ayvucha. Again, we have the shemen, right? We have the the um, shemen, which is another type of liquid. We have the oil. And the shemen and shemanecha obviously means your oil, but at the same time, shemen turak shemecha, while it continues with shemen, the end of the pasuk, right, is shemen turak shemecha. Right, your shame, your name, your reputation, uh, and that, of course, is uh, clues us in to something which is very important here, which is that Shira Shirim works on the level of Mashal and Nimshal. Right, that's a, it's an analogy for something deeper, for something beyond just the love story that occupies the surface of the pages of Shira Shirim. So the first thing we have to keep in mind is the idea of the idea of the Mashal. And the second, which follows shortly on the heels of the first, is the play on words, I believe, in Pasuk Dalid, of Mashcheni. Okay? Mashcheni acharecha narutza, either Mashcheni acharecha narutza, or Mashcheni acharecha, either Mashcheni, comma, acharecha narutza, or Mashcheni acharecha, comma, narutza. But in any case, draw, draw me to you, and I will run after you, that idea, which is very important, and we'll discuss Beth Hashem in greater depth in a few moments, but Mashcheni, in addition to having the connotation of to draw me close to you, has a secondary meaning, I believe, and that is when we consider the liquids, the fluids that are being described here, the yayin, the shemen, right? And especially when we put it together with 
as those appear together with other items later on in Perak Dalit, in Perak Hay, um, it becomes very clear that we're talking about uh, things that are associated with the Mishkan, right, the Mishkan. And as it develops, of course, as it evolves into the Mikdash. Okay, so we already have a hint at the Mashal Nimshal as it develops already in the very, very opening paragraph, as it were, of, of I know in poetry it's not called a paragraph, but in any case, the very beginning unit of, yes, thank you. Um, okay, I haven't finished my first coffee, so, okay. Here we go. That's number two. Number two, the idea of the Mishka. Number three. Number three. Number three is a little more complex. Okay? And number three involves the following. As you go through Shir Shirim, there are two parallel worlds that the story unfolds within. Okay? There are two different stages that the, that the Sefer goes back and forth between. Okay, and we could really, literally spend the whole shiur on this one aspect of the parallel worlds. We're not going to. I'm just going to allude to it, but they are very much one as they appear, one after the other. They are very much in sync, and they echo each other. It's important to keep an eye on that. But the two worlds that take place, there are these two different settings. There's the world of the two lovers of the Dod and the Raaya. That's one world, right? Of this boy and girl, man and woman. That's one world. And then there's the world of the palace, right? There's the outside world, the world that's occupied by the, by the palace and by the guards and by Shlomo HaMelech and by his, his bride and by his other wives and Pilag Shod and so on and so forth, right? Two different worlds. And the scene shifts back and forth and back and forth in a very systematic way between those two, those two scenes, okay? And one can, study that and there's a lot to say about that. We're just going to allude to it. But those two worlds that exist. That's point number one. Point number two, within point number three, A, that was A, B, is that there is an ongoing comparison and contrast between the two. When we talk about the royal wedding, right, and we have the scene of the palace and the royal wedding and and the king taking his wife, etc., we have also alongside it we have a description of this woman is referred to as Kalati. She's referred to as the bride. She, he is referred to as the Melech, as the king. And there's a parallelism between these two scenes. But what's really important is C. Um, and that is the following. That um, if we take a look at those two worlds and compare them, Okay, compare those two worlds for a moment. We have the world of this young lover, and we have, or lovers, and we have this world of the royal palace and the royal wedding. And on the one hand, we have this, I'm going to call them boy and girl, man and woman, whatever you like, but this boy and girl who are simple people, not from the highest economic classes, simple shepherd and shepherdess, and they live in their very simple world of out in the fields and the gardens, etc. And we have the world of the palace with these hordes of people and every the spotlights on them and you know millions of people are watching the wedding and the chulei If we were to contrast and compare those two worlds as the Sefer does again and again, 
everyone has you know their subjective take on things, but I would hazard a guess. I'm not going to do it. But if I were, I would hazard a guess that if we would were to poll people, and we were to present those two stories, the story of the king and his princess, and the story of this anonymous and important, it's a, they're anonymous. They don't even have names. This anonymous shepherd and shepherdess. We put these two one alongside the other, and we were to ask, I think anybody. Who would you rather be? Whose shoes would you rather step into? Do you want to be, for example, that princess? Or, you know, everyone's watching the wedding and, you know, it's televised all over the world and it's, do you want that life? Do you want that relationship? Do you want that courtship? Or do you want the one of this Dod and Raya? Okay? And everyone can reach their own conclusions, but I think, and I've asked a lot of people, to a person, Really, really, no one for a second would have to think about which of the two they want. And everybody who, who has given me an answer said that they would much rather be the Dod or the Raya than to be the Melech and the Kala in the story. Okay? And that's very important. So let's keep that in the back of our minds. One of the key themes, and this is C of number three, for those who are keeping count, making sure that I really do six keys at the end, um, and live up to the title. In any case, um, if you n- see, brings us to the way that, uh, really a thread that runs throughout the entire Sefer. And I'd like to take a look at the very conclusion of Shir Hashirim, to begin with, second box, Perakhet Pasuk Yudalad in Shir Hashirim, a Perakhet Pasuk Yudalad, Birach Dodi, Udmelach, and I'd like to read just a, uh, a paragraph of background, which I think is very significant. Um, there's a wonderful book on Shira Shirim by Dr. Yehuda Felix, who also some of his materials brought down in, in Dat Mikra as well. But he wrote an entire book, short book, but nonetheless an entire book on, on Shira Shirim called Song of Songs, Nature, Epic, and Allegory. And on page 12, he dis- discusses the animals that, um, the, that Shir Hashirim speaks about. In general, he is one of the foremost experts, not the, on nature and Tanakh, wrote a whole library of important svarim on the subject of uh, having to do with biology and nature, zoology, etc., having to do with Tanakh, and, um, as well as Chazal. And he focuses on the backdrop the scenes of nature that we have in Shir Hashirim. And he shares with us a little bit of background, and I certainly wouldn't have known this otherwise. So I'd like to share with you a paragraph from page 12 where he, reads, where, where he says the following. Research into the life of the gazelle and hind show that it follows a certain pattern corresponding to the seasons of the year. You can't hear? Sorry. I'll try that, try like this. Research into the life of gazelle and hind shows that it follows a certain pattern corresponding to the seasons of the year. The fawn lives under its dam's guard, but once grown, goes off to join the herd of hearts which live away from the hinds. At first, the sexes are reciprocally indifferent and avoid each other, a period of estrangement. But then the mating season comes around, the hearts begin to woo the hinds by by alternately chasing and fleeing from them. This maneuver is rehearsed by the hinds. Each then goes in search of the selected mate, and eventually they couple. 
And I think that we have here a very, very important um, backdrop to Shira Shirim and something that's emphasized again and again and again. And particularly important to note, it is the way the Sefer begins and the way the Sefer ends, okay, which is always a good way of getting a clue about what a Sefer or a section is about, is to look at the very beginning at the very end. Because we all know that people always... You know, anyone who writes, anyone who lectures, anyone who gives speeches knows that what is the part that you, you know, really have to make sure that your point is there, the opening and the closing, right? We all understand that. And therefore, <coughs> if you want to get a handle on a sefer or a section of Tanakh, it's always a good idea to, instead of reading it straight through at first, to look at the very beginning and to look at the very end. Okay, because that will give you a clue as to what, you know, the central idea is. This? I'm not sure I can do that. I can move this way. Will that help? Yeah. <laughs> That's easier. Okay. This Seder. Okay. Yes? No problem. It's a good thing we're coming to, this, to the important point now. <laughs> okay. Shir Shirim ends and begins and is filled with one very important idea. That's an idea that I want to talk about for a few moments before we go to the next point. Shir Shirim, the last pasuk, pasuk Yudalid, says as follows. Okay, in the second box, if you're following there or in Shir Shirim, Perak Pasuk it says as follows. She says to her beloved, go and run away. Run away and be like the Tzvi and the Ovrayalim, animals we just spoke about a moment ago, uh, or Felix spoke about a moment ago. And um, this is an idea that really is important throughout the entire Sefer. The beginning we saw already, Mashcheni Acharecha Narutza. Right? The idea that the way that this relationship is going to develop is by one of them running away, one of them pulling back, one of them separating and distancing themselves from the other, and the other therefore being drawn towards them. And this is a key idea, I believe, throughout all of Shira Shirim. We have a, a fascinating uh, example of this in Perak Bet, this is the next box, where the idea which appeared already in Pasuk Zion, in the previous box, this idea of the longing, of the waiting for the relationship to develop, in Perak Bet, Pasuk Ted Zion, and Yud Zion, we read, be like these animals that we just read about, that in the course of their mating, they run from each other, they chase after each other, they distance themselves, they separate, they come together. Be like that on Harei Bater. What are Harei Bater? Okay, what are Harei Bater? What are these mountains? So, it's interesting, the Ibn Ezra writes Harei Bater, Harei Nidod. Harei Bater means mountains of Nidod, like Navanat Yabar, right? Of, of, of going away, of separation. 
Hare Bater. Says the Ibn Ezra, how do I know that? Min vayvater otam batavech. Kilomarshi pared mimenu. It means separate from me. Okay? How do we know that? Where do we have this word bater? By the Brit Bain Habtarim. Okay? Now the Ibn Ezra says this as a purely linguistic point. Right? Simply, how do I know what the word means? It appears in the Brit Bain Habtarim. So I know it talks about separating the pieces of the animal one from each other. That's Livtor, that's the Brit Bain Habtarim. The, the, the comment of the, of the split pieces, the separate pieces. So here too, hare bater means mountains of separation. Okay? So the Ibn Ezra says as a purely technical point. But if you look in Shir Hashem Rabbah, you'll see in the next source that, in fact, it's more than that. This is actually alluding to the Brit Bein Abtarim, and that's a fascinating idea, because in Brit Bein Abtarim, if we learn it, there are different ways of understanding it, it's not our topic today, and we're going to move on, but to just suggest briefly, one of the ways along the lines of the parish of the Ran, a la Torah, those who are not familiar, one of the great perushim on Chumash, the Ran, one of the great Rishon, the same person wrote the Drash on Aran, uh, apparently it, the, it wrote a parish on Chumash, which is a fascinating parish, we only have part of it, um, but it has many fascinating things, and one of the things he talks about is that if you look in Bresha Perak Ted Vav, which is the next source here, you'll see that um, Avram Avinu, Avram Avinu asks, Bame Eida Ki Irashana. Okay? And there are different ways of understanding what Bame Eida Ki Rashana is. The way the Ran explains, I'm going to explain not exactly like the Ran, but along the lines of the Ran. Bame Eida, Avram Avinu is asking, in effect, okay, you're telling me that there's going to be this Galut, that we're going to be, you know, we're going to be in a land that's not ours, we're going to be in exile for 400 years, and during that time we're going to be oppressed and we're going to be enslaved, etc. Bame Eida Ki Rashana. Okay, I'm sorry, let me back up one step. Sorry, I went out of order. I apologize. Hashem told Avram he's going to get out of Israel. Avram says, Through what am I going to know that I'm going to get this land? And Hashem answers a few psukim later, In other words, one can interpret this in two ways. One way of interpreting is, Yadoa Teda, I want you to know that, key, that your descendants are going to be uh, in a land that's not theirs, etc. But there's another way of interpreting it. And this is along the lines of the Ran. And that is, Yadoa Teda, you will know. When will you know? How will you know? Through what will you know? Yadoa Teda, Kiger Yezarachah, Beretzolahem, Vavadumi Nuotam. When your descendants are in exile, when they're oppressed, when they're enslaved, through that you will know that you're on the road, you're on the path to getting Eretz Yisrael. And that's the way that I think Shir um, Hashem uh, is interpreting it. Al-Harei Vater is telling us a very important idea. That if we go back to the Brit Bay of Tarim, there's this concept that there are many ways of looking at Galut and Chorban and I think it's particularly appropriate to be discussing this at this time of year. There are many aspects, and it's not one or the other. There's certainly an aspect of Onesh, there's certainly an aspect of punishment, etc. That's certainly true. But there's also another idea that Shir Hashirim emphasizes, as do many of the Nevi'im. Shir Hashirim emphasizes that there is this idea 
of distance and longing where Hashem is saying to Bnei Israel that if when we had the Beit HaMikdash, if when Hashem was accessible, it was too easy and we didn't seek out Hashem's presence and we didn't do what we had to do in order to have the Veshachanti Betocham, then the cure, the bitter cure for that is Hashem's pulling back, Hashem's distancing Himself from us, Hashem being mistater, hiding so that we should seek Him out, so that we should long, so that we should pull closer, so that we should run after. Mashcheni acharecha narutza. Burach dodi. Right? This is a key idea. This is a key image. Really, you look throughout all of Sher Shirim, it recurs again and again and again. And this, of course, brings us to the completion of the question I started with. If, in fact, this is true, that Sher Shirim is speaking about the Mishkan and Mikdash, is speaking about an idea about the Mikdash, and the idea that's telling us about the Mikdash, I'd like to develop a little more in a moment, but the idea that's telling us is that Chorban, Galut, is about Mashcheni, Acharech, and Rutzah. Shlomo HaMelech. Shlomo HaMelech built the Beit HaMikdash. There was no previous destruction, no exile. This is where everyone is together. There aren't even two different kingdoms yet, let alone a dispersal, an exile. Why is Shlomo HaMelech writing about this? Why is he in a position to talk about this? From where is he coming? Okay, and that's something that I'd like to discuss at the end. But let's return back to this point. And here we have, I think, something very beautiful. We know, we know that Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva's famous, famous statement that Kolaktuvim Kodesh, Shashirim is Kodesh Kodashim. You have it, one of the versions of it in the Mirish Tanhuma in front of you. Um, next last source on page one. Rabbi Akiva says that Shirashirim is Kodesh Kodashim. And there are so many levels of meaning to that statement of Rabbi Akiva. And obviously, the most simple and the the superficial meaning, which is certainly true, is that he's talking about the tremendous greatness and importance and depth and beauty of Shir Hashirim, and how important it is. But it's much more than that. If we think for a moment, what was in Kodesh HaKadoshim? What was in the Kodesh HaKadoshim? What defined the Kodesh HaKadoshim? What's at the center of the Kodesh HaKadoshim? The Aron. What's in the Aron? So as the Gemara says in Menachar at the bottom of the page, what's in the Aron? Luchot v'shivrei luchot munachim ba'aron. There are the luchot, but there are also the shivrei luchot. Meaning, on the one hand, we have the luchot, which Chazal described as the ketubah, as the sign of the relationship between Akash Baruch and B'nai Yisrael. That's one thing that's in the Aron. But alongside it is also the shivrei luchot when Bnei Israel had to be reminded of what we were throwing away, of what we were losing, of the fact that there was this danger of distance, of Chorban, of Galut, when Moshe comes down and breaks the Luchot, and that's what reunites Hashem and Bnei Yisrael. Right? Luchot v'shivrei Luchot Monachim Baron. And in that sense too, Shir Hashirim is Kodesh Karashim. Shir Hashirim is about this idea that the relationship between Hashem and Israel, there are places in Tanakh where it talks about the idea of the Luchot, but there are also places where we need to talk about the Shivrei Luchot. We'll return to this idea at the very end. Time permitting. Okay, let's turn the page. Point number four. Point number four, I couldn't really put on the page. I couldn't put in the source book. 
because it's what's not in Shir Hashirim. It's what's not here. It's what's missing. But I'd like to pause for a moment for point number four. By the way, this year is about point number six, but we need a few introductions. Um, point number four is as follows. What makes Shir Hashirim so difficult, and it's remarkable, it's remarkable. You read Shir Hashirim from beginning to end, you read the story of the Dod and the Raya, there is not one word of narration in the entire story. We're presented with a narrative that has no narration. We have a, a flow of dialogue, of thoughts and words and statements and reference to events. There's not one time in the story of the Do and the Raya where it directly narrates the story. It never once says anything like he said or she said. Take a look at Shir Hashirim. You won't find it. not mistaken. If you find it, tell me. But I don't think there's even one time that it says he said or she said. Even though most of the Sefer for eight chapters tells us what the two of them said. There's not one word saying this is what, you know, and then he said, and then she said. No stage directions. No statements of where something takes place when something takes place, right? And then, before that, you know, it's kind of the difference between learning the Yushalmi as opposed to the Bavli. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's incredible. There is, there are no connecting phrases, there are no, no, there's no, narr- the narrator just walked off the job. You know, the editor just didn't, fit. it's very strange. I think that's very deliberate, but it's a fascinating presentation, but it makes it very difficult. Because you don't, even, you're not even told, let me put this way, you're not, it's not given to us when she is speaking or when he is speaking or even who the he and she are or even if they're the same he and she throughout and all these things are debated or whether something is a flashback or whether something is looking forward or whether something is happening that moment or what the frame of reference of time, none of those things are explicitly in the text Certainly not in the world of the Dod and the Raya. Okay? Now, I must tell you, this didn't hit me the first time that I read, that I read Shir Hashirim. But at a certain point, I realized, well, this is amazing. Like, I had to sit down as I was learning through Shir Hashirim. And what I did was I actually printed out a copy of Shir Hashirim. And I, you know, put the different parts in blue and red just to be able to, you know, see who's talking and what. Because ex- the only clue you're given is basically whether it's, you know, in Zachar or in a Keva, and that's the only way you know whether it's, you know, wh- that, that's the only clue. Other than that, you don't know who's speaking or what. So you can figure it out, but we're not told at any point. And that's a very interesting challenge in Shira Shira. And that's part of the reason why I say that I couldn't even begin by telling you a short version of the story because I can tell you what I think. And I will tell you what I think. I will tell you what I think at the you know in a few moments. But okay. that's the challenge. So for that reason, there are many, many varied ideas as to the sequence of events, as to how many different stories there are, how many different characters there are. Right? Because how do you know? Again, we go to the very end. Okay, top of page two, 
or Shirashirim Perkhet, Pasukhet, as you wish, depending on whether you're following the Tanakh or in the source sheet. And I believe, and again, what I'm saying is one opinion of who knows how many, but this is what I believe in terms of the way that the Sefer needs to be put together. Let's read a few psukim. And keep in mind that this is the very conclusion of the Sefer. Achot lanu ketana v'shadayim ein la mana sel achotenu biyom sheyidu barba im chomahi nivna la tira kesef vimdelati natsura aleha luach ares ani chomah v'shaday kamigdalot az hayiti be'inav kimotzeit shalom Pasuk Chet and Tet are presumably the relatives of the Raya speaking, the relatives of this girl speaking, and they talk about their little sister, their little sister who's not even physically mature yet. And then she responds as any young girl would respond, I think, and says, what are you talking about? I'm grown up, I'm a big girl, you know, etc. And then it continues, Kerem Hayal Shlomo, Turn to the other world, the parallel universe. Kerem Hayal Shlomo, Bebal Hamon, Natan et Akerem Lenotrim, Ish Yavi Bepirio, Elif Kasef, Karmish Lilfanai, Elif Hashlomo, Matan Lotrim at Pirio, Hayoshev Bakanim, Chavirim Akshivim, Lekoler Hashmieni. And then that concluding Pasuk of Barach Dodi to run away. My guess, I hope educated, but my guess, my feeling, my understanding of Shir Hashirim is as follows. And there are places throughout Shir Hashirim where I think this is clearly indicated, but you have to go over it and see for yourselves, that number one, contrary to what some suggest, I think that Shir Hashirim takes place, so to speak. The story the story that is the mashal level of Shir Hashirim, that it takes place when the heroine of the story, and I think there's one heroine of the story, again, I know there are different opinions, but I think that that heroine is a very young girl. I'm not going to give you an exact age, but we're talking about she is at most at the very, very, very beginning of adolescence. A very young girl. And that the relationship as opposed to what some people say that we're talking about someone who's looking back on maybe a marriage and a divorce or a relationship and a separation or many rounds of that, I think that just the opposite, that we're talking about a young girl at the very, very beginning of the relationship, maybe even before it's really begun, but certainly at the very beginning where much of, if not all, of the things that he says are taking place in her mind, as we find explicitly on several occasions, al mishkavi baleilot, right, where she talks about lying in bed at night and thinking about and dreaming about and fantasizing about, and again, it never talks about his saying this to her. She has there's all this dialogue that's going on. Where is it going on? And I think that the dialogue is going on in her mind, and whether it's whether part of it is memory and part of it is fantasy and part of it is hope and part of it is planning and where all of it is projecting, 
But certainly, that we're talking about someone very, very young, someone at the very beginning of this relationship, where most of what's being said, if not all, is projecting to the future. There's the world. And what we have really is this world of imagination, this world of fantasy, this world of, of thinking about the future. And we have this world of reality, of cold, hard reality, the world of the palace, the world of Shlomo Amalek, etc. These are the two parallel worlds that the Sefer presents us with. Again, you can't really appreciate what I just said without going back and rereading all eight chapters carefully with that assumption and seeing if it works. I think it really puts the whole Sefer together and explains so much that otherwise doesn't make sense in a very unified way. In any case, that's point number five. Okay. We're ready to begin. Point number six. And really, 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 point six. Point six is what it's about. But I needed the other five points in order to get here. And then I have a short postscript, if you'll bear with me, once we get through point number five. I'm sorry, point number six. Point number six. I was really hoping that the whiteboard would be over here. But we're going to have to use a little bit of imagination, okay? Because it's going to be ridiculous if I try to use that. I'm going to have to inconvenience people and it's going to, you know, it's going to be going like this and then moving on. It's not worth it. We'll use our imagination, okay? So pretend we have a whiteboard behind me and that I'm using it and here we go. Remember, there are two central characters or if you'd like, many pairs of characters, but I'm going to talk about one pair of characters because I think that's all there are. One pair of characters, the Dode and the Raya. And the most obvious thing about the Dode and Raya throughout the entire Sefer is that the Dode and Raya, it's like practically like looking in the mirror. Right? Anyone's read Shirashirim? What he says about her, she says about him, and vice versa. Right? There's a tremendous parallelism. They describe each other, except for the fact that one's male and one's female, but adjusting for that, they describe like, you know, they talk about each other in almost identical terms, down to the language. And I can go through a whole list of examples, but I think it's very obvious to anyone who's read Shir Hashirim. You know, t- glance at it, you'll see it. It's very clear. He is the shepherd, and she is the shepherdess. Right? And they are physically, and in every other way, described very similarly. One of the reasons that I think that a lot of, if not all, of what she quotes him as saying is perhaps projection. But okay, we'll leave that aside. The point is that they're described in very similar terms. Okay, so let's talk about the two of them for a moment. She and he said are both, the first thing we know about them is that they're both, their, their occupation is that they're both shepherds, Right? Both described, and that runs through the whole Sefer, with this imagery of being shepherds. Okay. So he is a ro'er, and not coincidentally, she is the ra'ya. Okay? And very obvious play on words, right? He's the ro'er, and she's the ra'ya. Okay? That's number one. Okay, keep it in the back of, our, um, back of our minds. And I'd like you to remember that as we go through a few psukim on the left-hand side 
in the middle left-hand side of page 2. Okay, page 2, middle left-hand side. I'd like to read a few psukim with you. Now keep in mind, I'm going to go, I, I'm not, this is not an, a mistake. I'm sure that I've made many mistakes and will make many mistakes today, but this is not one of them. I'm deliberately not distinguishing between the, his description and her description, or the description of him and the description of, of her, because I don't think there's really a difference. It's like looking in the mirror. Again, right? they're saying the same thing about each other. So I'm going to be indiscriminate about whether I'm talking about him or her, because it doesn't really matter, because by extension, what's true of one is true of the other. Okay, let's take a look. We have here already in the context of this Mashcheni Acharecha Narutza, we have this description, Heviani Hamelchadarav. And the way that at least some interpret, and I think that there's a clear meaning of it, and it's parallel to the other universe, instead the two parallel universes, Heviani Hamelchadarav is her speaking about the Dod. Okay? And describing him, in other words, he he is her Prince Charming, right? He's the as far as she's concerned, he is the real king. He's the real prince of the story, right? He's the Melech. Forget about that Melech that has this fancy wedding that everyone's watching. Yeah, that's that's irrelevant. Her Melech, Heviania Melech Hadrav, this is this is her Dod. Okay? What I'm trying to do, just to be clear, is to kind of create a little bit of a portrait of the boy slash man in the story. Okay? So we have some idea of the description of this person. So he's the shepherd. He's also described as as Heviani HaMelech. Okay? And we continue. Pasuk Yud Gimel. Tzror Hamor Dodili Ben Shaddai Yalin. Eshkol HaKofer Dodili Bekarmei Ein Gedi. Okay, so the Dod, he's the Dod, right? Dodi, he's the Dod. And one of the many places where, one of the, the pastoral scenes where the, the uh, romance plays out is a very beautiful setting that I'm sure we're all familiar with, which is Ein Gedi. Okay? Pasuk Zayin. Okay, very clearly, he is the Ro'eh, major part of where the scenes take place. He is being Ro'eh, his son. And then, we have a series of psukim that describe one particular physical attribute. And let's take a look at them for a moment. Pasuk Tedvav through Tetzayin, again in Perak Aleph. Hinach Yafa Rayati, Hinach Yafa Enayach Yonim, Hinach Yafa Dodi Afnaim Afarsenu Ra'anana. Okay, talks about the beauty, the Yofi of the Dod and the Ra'ya, and specifically it talks about their beautiful eyes. Hinach Yafa, I'm going now to Paragdalid, Pasuk Aleph. Hinach Yafa, again Paragdalid, Pasuk Aleph. Hinach Yafa Rayati, Hinach Yafa Enayach Yonim. Again, focus on the beautiful eyes, right? One more pasuk before we get to the point. 
One pasuk, pasuk yud. Again in parakei, pasuk yud. Dodi tzach ve'adom, dagol mervava. Okay, so he's described as Adom. Right? It's being Adom. So everyone's sitting down. Here's my crazy idea. There's something that I would never be able to prove, but I'm a thousand percent convinced it's true. So I'm going to present it to you as a suggestion, and I think it's a, a, a tremendous key for understanding the Sefer, and I'd like to elaborate on it over the next few moments. There's the Raya, and there's the Dod. Okay. Dod, right? We're right to have a whiteboard alongside all the other descriptions that we just read. The first thing that we want to put up here is the title, which is that he's the Dod. Dod, Dalid, Vav, Dalid. Got it? Okay. Throughout most of Tanakh, not all, but throughout most of Tanakh, and so the earlier parts in particular, right? David is spelled Dalit Vav Dalit. Okay? And so, if we look at the letters, the Dod, and I'm not saying that the Dod is David, I don't mean that, but when you look at the fact that we have the Dod, Dalit Vav Dalit, which is the same exact word as David, even etymologically, I believe. But in any case, it's certainly the same, the same exact letter, the same word. Who is the shepherd and the king? Right? Who is described as being Yefei Enayim, as Adom, right? Engedi, right? It's gone, right? Let's take a look. And the first thing I was in learning Shir Hashirim, I was struck, reminded of the Pesukim in Shmuel Al Perk Tetzayim when we were first introduced to David Amelach. Let's take a look. Shmuel Al Perk Tetzayim on the right hand side of the page for those who are following in the booklet. Shmuel Al Perk Tetzayim Pasuk Yud Aleph and Yud Bet. Vayomer Shmuel El Yishai Hatamu Anarim Vayomer Od Sha'ar Hakatan Vihine Roer Batzon. Okay. Of course, David, Mashiach Hashem, Mashiach Shemen. We look in Shir Hashem Perak Aleph. We look at the very beginning. L'reach Shemanecha Tovim Shemen Turak Shemecha Alkein Alamot Aivucha. And I wonder about Mashcheni Acharecha Narutza, which is obviously a different word, different spelling, a different word, and logically different. But in terms of Lashon Nafel Lashon Nafel Lashon, one of the Lamed Bet Midot Shatorin Dreshbahem of Chazal. Some counts chafav, chasayin. In any case, lashon ofel lashon. I think that the allusion to, especially when it's matched together with the shemen and the double meanings of all these words here, the idea of his being nimshach b'shemen is a very powerful one. In any case, I think that there's very much an allusion to David Hamelach here, which makes a lot of sense, being that the author of the book is his son Shlomo. Right? Does not so far from the consciousness of Shlomo HaMelech, right, that David would be alluded to some level. 
Why? What is the significance? So let's turn the page for a moment. And let's try to bring together some of the things we've learned so far and maybe take it a little bit further. The fact that part of Jewish history is Galut and Korban is not a Chiddush to Shlomo HaMelech, even though historically it hasn't happened yet in the full sense other than the 400 years, which is a foreshadowing. But nonetheless, the fact that the Beit HaMikdash could be destroyed, the fact that Bnei Yisrael could be exiled, these are not foreign concepts. Anyone who's read Chumash knows these ideas. And Shlomo HaMelech certainly is familiar with all of the potential even as he builds the Beit HaMikdash. That's not a chiddush. And even if you look at the Nevoot of what Hashem says to David and to Shlomo about if you listen, if you don't, clearly echoes what we have in Chumash about that. So on an intellectual plane, in terms of, you know, purely cognitively, in terms of just information, and I, I don't know the kasha, how does Shlomo Melch know that we're, we need a safer about Galut and Chorban? That's not my question. My question is, but what does it have to do with his experience? What does it have to do with, with his life? Why does he write about this? Why is he in a position to write about it? And I think the answer is as follows. There is a tremendous lesson that I believe Shlomo Hamel saw very clearly in his lifetime, in his own experience. And that's as follows. And I know I'm going to get in trouble with what I'm about to say because it's, you know, it, it's, it's a tricky thing because there are two sides to the coin. But let me say it anyhow. No doubt the goal what we want, what should be, the ideal is that there actually be a Beit HaMikdash and there actually be an Avodah and there actually be a situation of Vishachan Tibetocham. No question. That's the goal. That's the ideal. That's what we want to be a reality. And that's why Shlomo Melech goes ahead and builds the Beit HaMikdash and actually brings Kabar B'chulei B'chulei. No doubt about it. <coughs> and yet, and yet at the same time, Shlomo HaMelech has experienced, at least to a certain degree, the generation of his father versus his own generation. And Shlomo HaMelech has the awareness that on a certain level, if you put side by side David HaMelech's passion and excitement and those around him in the early stages of not building the Beit HaMikdash, let alone having it, but just paving the way for it. The scene in Shmuel Bet, Perak, Perak where, where, I'm sorry, Perak Vav, where he brings the Aron and the dancing and the rejoicing, the longing of David HaMelech throughout his life, the core passion that, to, that he should be able to, if not build the Beit HaMikdash, at least lay the groundwork for it. And the all the steps of it. And you put that side by side against the actual avoda in the time of Shlomo HaMelech. There's no question. You ask David, you ask Shlomo, which one would we prefer? We want the Beit HaMikdash of Shlomo HaMelech. There's no question about it. At the same time, you ask which one is more real, which one is more intense, which is more deeper... And the answer may well be what we have, the, the, the longing that we have, the, the going towards the Mashchei Nech Rechal Narutza of David HaMelech. Okay? 
look into Sefer Shmuel, look into Rayam, look into him, and and put it alongside Malachim and what you have in. And I think that there that this is part of the experience of Shlomo Melch. That Shlomo Melch realizes that although what he has achieved is what David was working for, and that's certainly what we want, and we're very happy that we have it, and that's certainly what we want to be. But at the same time, there is a certain intensity and a certain realness and a certain importance to the longing for and running after. And Shlomo Melch understands that in a very deep experiential way. And therefore, Shlomo HaMelech is able to say, Chavra, I'm going to give you a perspective on what Galut is about, what Korban is about, what the separation and the distance, what the Hester Panim is about, that Hashem is not leaving us, not running away from us, He's drawing us towards us. And that idea is something that comes from the experience of Shlomo Melch, even though historically he's at the beginning of Bayat Rishon, not the end of it, or beyond. And that's why I think it's so important that Shlomo Melch gives us this allusion to his father, David Melch. And that's like saying, well, you know, it would be nice if I put something in the, uh, in the credits at the beginning, or, the, you know, I want to thank my father David for all I got from him. You know, I don't think that's what's going on. I think that's much deeper than that. That it is, that Shlomo Melch is saying, I want you to think about the, ro- the, the, the phase of, of David HaMelech in terms of the Mishkan, the Mikdash, etc., and learn something about that for the, the period that we're talking about. And that's where, that's why I think it's Shira Shirim Hashar Lushlomo. Again, I have many more examples about the relationship to David, the allusions to David throughout Shira Shirim, but I gave you at least some of the simple ones that, you know, we could just do in a short amount of time. But Excellent. So I'm saying that I thousand I, I want to be I'm glad you brought it up because I want to make a point. I'm not trying to say that this is what the do, who the dode represents, what he is, or, or try, the identity of in the nimshal of who the things refer to. All I'm saying is that there is amongst the other things we are on Shirim, there's an allusion to David that is being made here. And that's and, and no more than that. I'm not trying to make an equation or say that that's what he, the Nimshal is. I'm simply saying that that between the lines, amongst all the other things going on, is an allusion to David. And again, the distinction, it's very important. On the one hand, the distinction between the Do and the Raya is very important in terms of the Nimshal. On the other hand, remember that they are equated one to the other. And that I think is important as well. Okay, let's go one step further. I mean, by the way, like, almost everything we said here about the dog could be said about the raya, but in any case, I, I think that the key is the dog. Okay, and I call your attention very briefly to um, uh, Shmuel Bet, Parag Vav, and Parag Zion. This be aware, in the second page, I'm sorry, in the third page, just a couple of examples of the scene, the uh, the describing the passion, the time of David, that I think Shlomo Melch is working off over here. Okay, so this is this is again briefly point number point number six. I want to now go. We're really done, but I have a postscript which I'd like to share with you for just a few moments in the remaining time. <coughs> We all know, Chazal tell us, Mitamidai Yoter Mikulam, 
Um, and Baruch Hashem, I've been blessed with uh, being able to teach Talmidim for decades and decades, and uh, more decades than I like to think about, and uh, or I would like to think about. In any case, as the case may be, um, very recently, very recently, in a totally different context, a different, we were learning a different sefer, we were discussing a different issue. I mentioned Gemara and Barabatra to make a particular point. Famous, famous Gemara. Gemara that I've seen, I don't know how many times, but I couldn't count how many times I've seen it. And it's a short little piece of Gemara, very simple piece of Gemara, at least just to read through it. And one of the Talmidim who had a very limited background in Gemara and Tanakh pointed out something that I never noticed and I was just stopped in my tracks and I started to think about it and I realized that it was a window to a whole world of understanding that I had never thought about, never seen before. And we're not going to do the whole thing now because we don't have time for it, but I want to just share with you a, a, the part that relates to what we are learning, what we learned today. Okay? The Gemara Babatra and Yudal and Mabet, the end of the first paragraph of Babatra, the Gemara talks about the official order of the books of Tanakh. And in particular, as concerns us, the books of the third section of Tanakh, namely Ketuvim. And there the Gemara says, Sidran Shel Ketuvim. Okay, the official order is not what you will have in any of the Tanakhs that you brought with you or bought in the, you know, brought, brought, bought downstairs, but if you take a look, it says the following is the official order. Sidran shel ketuvim, rut v'sefer tilim, v'iov u'mishlei, kohelet, shirashirim v'kinot, meaning echa, Daniel u'megilat Esther, Ezra v'divrayam. And the question that this student asked was a very simple one. Why is it that it's chopped up the way it is? I'm not talking about the commas, which are not part of the Gemara, obviously, but the vavs, why are there groupings within them? Why are some things put together and other things not put together as opposed to just having one long list, you know, as we would have expected? Why are certain things put together? And I never really paid attention to the vavs before. And I never noticed that about the Gemara. And I stopped to look and I was blown away because every single pairing has tremendous meaning and I spend a whole year on each one of them. I couldn't believe it. Okay, so I want to just talk about Shir Hashirim Vikinot. Okay? Shir Hashirim and Echa for one moment. And I'm not going to talk about all of Echa because but I want to talk about one Pasuk in Echa. One Pasuk in Echa. In Perak Aleph it says as follows. Okay, next to the last source on the page. Yushalayim at the time of the Chorban is compared to Anida. And Chazam, Farshim, etc. talk about the beauty of this, that the separation of Anida is temporary, it's not permanent, we're not talking about a divorce, we're talking about a temporary separation, etc. And obviously that's true and beautiful, but it's much deeper than that. The Gemara in Masachat Nida, Daflamid Aleph, says as follows Tanya, Haya Rabbi Meir Omer, Mipne Ma Amra Torah Nida Lishiv'ah, Mipne 
Sheragilba the Katzba. Amratarat hates Meashivat Yamim, Kideshit he Chaviva Albala, Kishat Knisata Luchupa. Says the Gemara, and it's fascinating, to the best of my knowledge, there are so many explanations given for Tarat Mishpacha, and I'm not saying that there you know, can't be many, many reasons. But the reason that we find in Chazal, which certainly at least should be at the top of the list of reasons, is a very, very powerful and beautiful reason, which is as follows. The Gemara says that Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Meir taught, when he would discuss the Allah of Nida, he would explain, say, why is it that the Torah has a prohibition between husband and wife of Nida, Mipnei Sheragil by the Katzpa? Because we all know the, you know, the stereotypes that one sees in sitcoms and movies and, and you know, in books of the old married couple, lost interest in each other, with no passion in the marriage anymore, etc. And the Gemara says, Rabbi Meir taught that it's important that there be a period of separation, of distance, of longing to revitalize the marriage on a regular basis so that it should always be a honeymoon. Every month it should be a honeymoon. And it should be a renewal all the time because of the fact that we desire what we can't have. And that's human nature. And therefore, that's what's needed. Says the Pasuk in Echa, not just that the Galut Me'ikar from the very outset was meant to be temporary. Not just that as it says already in the Tokacha in Vayikra for example Chukotai that that's not that Hashem is rejecting us. The Brit continues and the relationship continues, but it's a distancing, it's a separation, it's temporary. But more than that, the Pasuk is saying, it's a separation that is for the purpose of renewing the relationship, of drawing us closer, of bringing us back together. And therefore, and therefore, the essence of the perspective that we're given in this Pasuk and Eichan, I think it's not just the one Pasuk, is that the idea of Galut as a mode of Mashcheni Acharecha Narutza. And therefore, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful that when the Gemara in Baabatra puts together the various Svarim of Ketuvim, take a look at the list. And some of them are obvious. Rut and Tehillim. Rut and Tehillim, the very continuation of the Gemara, points to the relationship between Rut and Tehillim and the, the way that the, the essence of the spirit of Tehillim comes from, comes from Rut and the idea that when we, when we read in, in Tehillim, when Dov Mel talks about uh, the idea of Gam ki elach b'geit rara ki madi, it talks about the idea of not not uh, not not giving up it said it comes from root of how she says to Naomi that she's not going each one of the sets what's the set that's relevant for us shirashirim vikinot shirashirim and echa go together because the perspective that we gain from shirashirim is perspective on what Hurban and Galut is about, which is, of course, the essence of, of Echa. And therefore, in this very point of Mashcheni Acharecha Narutza, we find in Miguel Echa, in Alkein Lunidahayata, this idea that the separation is one for the purpose of Mashcheni Acharecha Narutza. And therefore, I believe it's no coincidence that this idea 
that this idea that sometimes that sometimes a critical and and, and essential and and even more real re- aspect of relationship is the distance, is the longing, is the is the is the need to be pulled closer through through separation. That idea is what the sefer begins with, Mashchenia Harachan Arutza. It's what the sefer ends with, Barachdo di as an image that runs throughout the entire Sefer uh, as they run towards and away from each other, much like the Tzvi and the Ofrayalim, Al Harebater, right? These Hare Nidod, these mountains of distancing and separation that is so critical for the relationship of the Dod and the Raya and ultimately for us and Akash Baruch Hu. I want to just conclude by thanking everyone for the opportunity to learn together. Thank you.